Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garrett. Today's topic is mass incarceration. We continue our series on the topic by discussing a little bit about policing, the war on drugs, and our criminal justice system's courtrooms. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so we are going to continue our conversation on mass incarceration. Garen, can you catch us up for people that are just chiming in now? If you haven't listened to part one and part two, you should definitely go back and listen to that before you continue in this conversation. But yeah, catch us up. What do we need to know and where are we headed in this episode? Yeah, so assuming that you have listened, but maybe it's been a couple weeks, just to remind you where we've been. We talked in the first episode about our need to have a heart for and care for and compassion for people who have drug addiction or are imprisoned. And our culture almost tells us that it's okay to hate and revile people who are in those situations, but that's actually not real. That's actually not okay. People deserve our empathy and our compassion and people who struggle deserve our empathy and compassion and you don't get a pass. You don't get to just not love someone because of their struggles. If anything, struggle is a reason to press in and give help and to find out what's actually going on yeah. And that, that's not the angle our culture takes, but we want to push back against that. Yeah. And then in the second episode, we talked about the history of how the racial caste system shifted after the civil rights movement and how the war on drugs was used as a primary tool to evolve and prosecute a shift in the racial caste system. Yeah. A way to keep black people and brown people disempowered in society. And then now we want to talk about how the system actually works, like how the war on drugs and the criminal justice system operates. And we're going to talk about how it is unfair and kind of get into some of the racial differences that happen because of the way it's set up. Okay. So the first thing I want to say is just I want to throw out or dispel the false ideas that most Americans have of the criminal justice system because of the media that we consume, namely television. So a lot of people have a picture in their mind of how policing works from shows like Live PD or Cops or other shows about police, or have a false idea of how courtroom scenes work because of courtroom dramas that we watch. Both of those pictures are completely inadequate. So first of all, policing. There's an episode that I would commend to you that goes deeper into this, an episode of This American Life, the podcast, called I'm on TV, where they talk about the show Live PD specifically, but they also, through that, kind of pull the veil off of policing shows in general to show how they're not actually an accurate depiction of how policing works. And the most important thing to know is just that police don't allow cameras to film them on their job unless they have complete editorial control over what is ultimately shown. So in those shows, you're, you're only seeing 
what the police departments allow you to see or want you to see. And they have at Live PD, even though it claims to be live, it's actually on like a 30-minute delay. And the departments have the ability to kill any story that they don't like. So anything that's not kind of sanitized, you're not seeing. So Dan Taberski of the podcast Running From Cops on that episode of This American Life said, quote, another thing we learned about Live PD and Cops 2 is that the police approve everything that goes on the air. With Live PD, that's where the 10 to 40 minute delay comes in. There's actually a hotline set up, like a bat phone, where the sheriff can see what's going out on the air and just pick up the hotline and kill it. And then another aspect of what happens on those shows is there's stuff that's just staged, where and they, and they talk about this in that podcast, how the police will actually go up to some of the people who you're seeing on this supposedly live show, and they'll threaten them saying, essentially, we're going to arrest you unless you sign this release and let us you know, do this whole thing for the TV show. So it's just not an accurate depiction of reality and it's not, not an accurate show. And it's kind of interesting because I think our society in general, we love justice. Like we love, well, what we really do is we love when other people get justice, which is like true crime podcasts are right. the thing. I mean, everybody, they're huge and everyone listens to all these like murder mystery shows or murder documentaries man we just there's something about justice and seeing people get in trouble for the things that they do that we love and it's interesting because i think most of the time you know i don't like when i get justice like if i do something wrong and stuff but man i love it when someone else gets justice we for, love for when people that we hate get justice, the justice that we think that they deserve. I, I, I was, I'm doing some research for a paper, and there's an article about the phenomenon of the first 48 show, and it talks about how this movement of live, of reality, crime TV has exploited black trauma and amplified and given a visual to black criminalization. So a lot of times you'll even see people who have been deemed criminals, when you talk about how the cops will force them to sign the releases, you'll see them really go all in to character in some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it, just, it just paints this visual that I think helps white people to be, it, it basically helps to condone people's racism. See see how those people act, see what they're, they're doing. This is why they deserve, you know, and, and it's just a phenomenon. Like watching crime television, my niece, she, because my sister watches crime shows and my niece calls it, uh, you know, she's like, mama's over there watching those hostile crime shows. And <laughs> so we call them hostile, hostile crimes. But it's so, tr- it's tragic that, even when you're watching people tell their stories of like when family members have been murdered, there's this theatrical nature to some of this stuff because we like to be entertained and it just desensitizes us to the reality of the trauma and how horrible it is that people are dying, that people have been murdered, that things have, you know, horrible things have happened. Mm-hmm. Garen, what, why do you think we love crime? So I mean, we don't love actual like crime, but why do you think we like watching crime and we love justice and hearing when you know when people when bad things happen to even good people? Sometimes right. we like that. Why? Why do you? 
what's the connection there? So I don't fully understand. I think there's to some degree there's a little bit of a morbid fascination with watching other people's trauma and there's because we don't usually experience that there's just kind of a curiosity of what would it feel like to go through the horrible things. I think it's the same thing with horror shows. I don't really understand the fascination with them, but I think it's, it's just fun. It's fun to it's be just scared. A way to, yeah, it's just like a way to kind of feel what it would feel like to go through something without actually having to go through it. Yeah. Kind of like a roller coaster. You're scared, but you're strapped in, yeah. so you're actually safe. Yeah. And then that that is like coupled with this idea that we know that it's gonna there's gonna be justice at the end. The bad guy's gonna get in trouble. He's gonna get caught. And I think part of what the attraction there is to that, like human beings are wired to have this sense of the way things are supposed to be. Like we, at some level, know this idea of how things should be and like fairness and rightness. And there's this impulse to want to see that. So, I mean, I think even from going into the biblical idea of justice, and this would be worth our audience just knowing in general, The Bible has this word in the Hebrew, it's the word mishpat, that Mm -hmm. is in 90% of the instances where the word mishpat is used in the Bible, it's not actually talking about people being punished for crimes. It's talking about, in 90% of the instances, about some kind of restoration to the way things should be. And then in 10% of the instances, it is punishment for a crime, but that punishment itself is kind of like a restoration to the way things should be, in a sense. It's like somebody who does something horrible, there is kind of like a a rightness to them being punished. But the primary emphasis of Mishpat is this idea of getting things back to how they should be. And I think that, that we are attracted to that, but the problem is that some of that in America has been hijacked towards, because we have this racist view of the, this implicit bias and this idea of black criminality, then restoring things to how they should be if you're carrying that view, is restoring things to black people being in trouble. Because I mean that's just like the cultural water that we've been drinking. And so then that there's like this celebration of justice towards black people, which is really actually false justice. Black people getting in trouble for crimes they didn't commit. Or justification for racism. Mm-hmm. Not justice at all. So I think it's a big problem that we're consuming this media that's lying to us about black criminality. And feeding this kind of false narrative. I think that it's the media, well, I think it's the media profiting because the media doesn't care. They're going to go after what makes bucks and they're profiting off of racism. Yeah. We talked about this before that the television knows that people will watch something that they think is scary. And they know that watching a middle-class white guy do something bad is not as scary to the majority of the American audience, which is mostly middle class, you know, white people. And so they don't show that. The the emphasis like television overemphasizes by like a, a four to one ratio, it'll overemphasize black criminality. So a black person who commits a crime is more likely to show up on television than a white person who commits this an identical crime by like a four to one rate. And so it creates this skewed view. But let's get back into the reality. And, and, and we've talked so far about policing, and we're going to come back to... I've talked a little bit here about how our false depiction of policing comes from media, but we are going to take a pause on that before we get into what real policing looks like. We're going to get into that later in this episode. But I also want to talk about the courtroom, because the other aspect of the criminal justice system is um, the courtroom. 
And so for that, I'm going to read a quote from Michelle Alexander, who said, those who have been swept within the criminal justice system know that the way the system actually works bears little resemblance to what happens on television or in movies. Full-blown trials of guilt or innocence rarely occur. Many people never even meet with an attorney. Witnesses are routinely paid and coerced by the government. Police regularly stop and search people for no reason whatsoever. Penalties for many crimes are so severe that innocent people plead guilty, accepting plea bargains to avoid harsh mandatory sentences. And children, even as young as 14, are sent to adult prisons. The reality is most people, anytime you see a courtroom drama, there are lawyers there, and most people in America can't afford lawyers. So that is not the majority of the experience of people who are swept into the criminal justice system. People who are swept into the system skew poor because poor communities are often targeted and they generally can't afford lawyers. They have public defenders who they maybe meet with once before a trial and usually the public defenders don't have the capacity to do trials so they push them towards plea bargains. And usually those plea bargains incentivize even innocent people to plead guilty on a lesser charge in order to just skip the system. Yeah. So the entire system has almost no resemblance with what we see on television. Yeah, it's not actually trying to enact actual justice. It's like, how quickly can we get to the next thing? Yeah, clearing the docket, like, let's clearing just, the cases. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the system is made in a way that is almost impossible to navigate without a lawyer. And the people who can navigate it then are the privileged people who can afford lawyers. That's exactly, yeah, because it doesn't value. I want to say that the system doesn't value people. It, like it doesn't actually value every individual. Mm-hmm. It values rich people. Yeah, rich people over over the poor. And we're going to get more into that in the next episode is how poverty plays in with all of this, the dynamics of poverty. Yeah, that's huge. Mm-hmm. So then most of the growth, the reality, kind of pulling the veil off of what this actually looks like, most of the growth in the criminal justice system since 1985 has come as a result of drug offenses. Drug offenses account for two-thirds of the rise in the federal inmate population and more than half of the rise in state prisons between 1985 and 2000. Approximately half a million people are in prisons or jail for a drug offense today, compared to an estimated 41,000 in 1980 which is an 1,100% increase in that time. So as a result, more than 31 million people have been arrested for drug offenses since the war on drugs began, which is, I mean, that's like a tenth of the American population. Yeah. And arrest for marijuana possession, not sale, but just possession of marijuana, drug that's less harmful than tobacco or alcohol, accounted for 80% of the growth in drug arrests since 1990. So the reality is most of the criminal justice system is, or or the growth in it and a significant portion of the people who are swept into it are because of drug crimes and the war on drugs. Yeah. And then we've talked about this a little bit already, but just to get into a little bit more of the details of it, there's this myth that the war on drugs is going after kingpins, like the people who are big time sellers of drugs. And that's actually not true. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Data from 2005 showed that four in five drug arrests are for possession, not for sale. Also, we've talked a little bit about drug dealers have money that they can turn over to the police. The process is called civil forfeiture. And as a result of that, they can essentially buy down their sentence. They have this leverage that they can use to negotiate lower sentences. 
So in Massachusetts, an investigation by journalists found that an average payment of $50,000 in drug profits won a 6.3-year reduction in drug sentences for dealers, while agreements of 10000 or more brought elimination or reduction of trafficking charges in almost three-fourths of such cases. So federal drug forfeiture laws are one reason, according to Blumenson and Nielsen, quote, why state and federal prisons now confine large numbers of men and women who had relatively minor roles in drug distribution networks, but few of their bosses. This system is built in a way that lets the real structure of the system remain in place while just punishing people who are down at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. And it's profiting the system. The system is actually, like, literally profiting. Mm-hmm. From crime. Mm-hmm. From it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and we're going to get more into that more. But, yeah, police departments get to keep the money that they gain through civil forfeitures. And so they're literally profiting off of the continuance, not the success of the war on drugs. So let's get into the police department and some of their incentives. We previewed before the fact that police departments were initially not on board with the war on drugs. There was a lot of skepticism originally in the police community about why a war on drugs was needed because, as I mentioned before, only 2% of people thought that drugs was a major problem when the war on drugs began, and that included police departments. So there was all that early pushback, but what happened was the financial incentives of police departments shifted in a way that brought them on board. So practically overnight, the budgets of federal law enforcement agencies began to soar as the war on drugs began. So between 1980 and 1984, FBI anti-drug funding increased from $8 million to $95 million. And the Department of Defense anti-drug allocations increased from $33 million to a billion in 1991. And then during that same period, the DEA anti-drug spending grew from $86 million to a billion, and the FBI anti-drug allocations grew from $38 million to $180 million. So by contrast, the funding of agencies responsible for drug treatment and prevention and education were reduced drastically. They were reduced. Mm-hmm. You, which you would think, if you're actually wanting to win the war on drugs, you would try to treat right. people for drugs and prevent them. But those funding, those departments were reduced dramatically. So the budget of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, for example, was, re- was reduced from $274 million to $57 million. Whoa. Like a fifth of, it was like an 80% reduction from 1981 to 1984. And the anti-drug funds allocated to the Department of Education were cut from $14 million to $3 million. So again, like an 80% reduction. It's like, you, you see what's going on. Yeah, here. I mean, it's almost, I didn't know that happened, mm-hmm. but it's like, it seems obvious. Mm-hmm. It's big, big business, yep. for sure. That's a lot, I mean, a billion? Yeah. From like $50 million? <laughs> That mm-hmm. is... Yeah, 20-fold growth. Oh, man, dude, that is so, crazy. But it's not just that the police got more money to prosecute the drug war, but it's also the way the money was given, which we'll get into. But there were huge cash grants that flooded into law enforcement agencies that essentially acted as a bribe for them to make drug law enforcement a top priority. So the BURN program was designed to encourage every federal grant recipient to help fight the war on drugs. It offered millions of dollars specifically tied to drug arrests. So now we have a proliferation of narcotics task forces 
And the Pentagon and DEA have armed police departments with millions of dollars in military gear that, again, was a reward tied to their participation in the war on drugs. So almost immediately after the federal dollars began to flow, law enforcement agencies around the country began to compete for funding, equipment, and training. And so I mean, you can just see the money created the idea that this is something important that we should do. But until the money was there, there wasn't that sentiment. By the late 1990s, the vast majority of departments were on board. According to Cato Institute, in 1997, the Pentagon handed over more than 1.2 million pieces of military equipment to police departments. And then another part of the financial incentive, and th- this, there's two sides to this coin. And we're going to talk about civil forfeiture now. And I want you to both pay attention to how it gives perverse incentives to police departments and also how it operates against the poor and specifically targets the poor. And I think racial min- anything that targets the poor will skew towards harming racial minorities, but also it will, I mean, it's just we should have compassion for the poor just across the board, broadly speaking. And the civil forfeiture laws are horrible in how they are used as a tool against uh, people who are poor. Okay. So Michelle Alexander again says, quote, Law enforcement agencies were granted the authority to keep for their own use the vast majority of cash and assets they seized when waging the war on drugs. This dramatic change in policy gave state and local police an enormous stake in the war on drugs, not in its success, but in its perpetual existence. She goes on later to say, The process to fight civil forfeiture is so heavily weighted in favor of the government that fully 80% of forfeitures go uncontested. Property or cash could be seized based on suspicion of illegal drug activity, and the seizure could occur without notice or hearing upon showing a mere probable cause to believe that the property might somehow be involved in a crime. This probable cause could even come from a paid self-serving testimony of somebody who has interests clearly averse to the property owner. Neither the property owner nor anyone else had to be charged with a crime, much less found guilty of one. Indeed, a person could be found innocent of any criminal conduct and the property could still be subject to forfeiture. Once the property was seized, the owner had no right to counsel and the burden was placed on him to prove the property's innocence. Because those targeted were typically poor, they lacked resources to hire an attorney. So the system was set up so that police could take people's property on mere suspicion, even shady suspicion, that it has, was somehow involved in a drug crime, and then provide no legal counsel to the person who lost it. And the, person, the burden of proof, you know, as people, we are innocent until proven guilty, but that is not true of civil forfeiture law. The burden of proof would be on the person to prove that their property wasn't involved in a drug crime. But how do you even do that? In most instances, like how do you prove that your property has never been used in a drug crime? It's like a crazy high burden to get your property back. And the police disproportionately use civil forfeiture against poor people because they have an incentive and they get the money if they get to keep it. And so you want to target people who don't have the ability to hire a lawyer to fight back. Wow. So this this means that, for example... A woman who knew that her husband occasionally smoked pot, and this kind of thing, this is real, this happens. She could lose her car and have it forfeited to the government because she allowed her husband to use her car. 
because the car was guilty of transporting someone who had broken a drug law at some point. She could legally lose her only form of transportation, even knowing that she had committed no crime. And women who are involved in some kind of relationship with men who are accused of drug crimes are often the victims of civil forfeiture laws. Courts have not been forgiving of women in these circumstances. Wow. And then here's a twisted part of it, is that if you have actually been found guilty of a drug crime, then you are entitled to counsel for the civil forfeiture portion of the action against you. But it's actually people who have not been charged with a drug crime who are at a bigger disadvantage because they don't have a right to legal counsel. So there's actually this twisted thing where the, the police actually have an incentive to take people's property and not charge them for a crime. Yeah, that's crazy. This helps explain why 90% of forfeiture cases in some jurisdictions are not challenged. Most people simply can't afford to hire an attorney. It's like, what white people even know that this is real? Is yeah, it I mean, I, exists? I didn't. This is not used against us. And we, police know that we would be able to hire an attorney and fight back and start an investigation and go to the media and post on social media. But like, this is a real part of the life of people who are living in poor communities that are targeted. Journalists in Louisiana reported that police engage in massive pretextual stops in an effort to seize cash, with money diverted to police department ski trips and other unauthorized uses. And I don't want to say that this is always, it's not like this money is always being used by police in ways like ski trips. It does happen. I think a lot of times the police just use this for their budget for law enforcement. It's still like a perverse incentive because it's still department heads who manage the budget are going to pressure the police officers under them to engage in civil forfeitures if they know that that's where their money's coming from. But there are instances where it's been used for things like ski trips and there's not sufficient accountability to prevent that. In Southern California, an LA Sheriff's Department employee reported that deputies routinely planted drugs and falsified police reports to establish probable cause for cash seizures. Yeah, that's terrible. Planning drugs on people... Is, is by police, by the people that are, you know, supposed to protect us. Gosh, that is the opposite of justice. Yep. And I mean, we're not, none of us are anti-police, but that, I mean, if I was a police officer, that would be very frustrating. I feel like it should be more frustrating mm-hmm. to the, you know, I'm air quoting good apples in the police force. It's like, and that's why I've always said, I think, the people that should be upset at this the most are the people that the good guys on that team, like the real people, the people that want real actual justice. But mm-hmm. again, and then I come back to like, man, what do I do? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just a, I, I do this podcast thing. How, how do I, how do I change that? I mean, mm-hmm. it feel it feels so hopeless. Almost, almost all the things you've said. I mean, I just I'm like, oh, I want that to be different, but. I yep. and then I then I just freeze because I'm like I don't I don't think I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The majority of police officers, the reason they go into that career for for most police officers is a desire for justice and to contribute to society and do good. And I think there's an honor that is appropriate to give to police officers who yeah. literally do risk their lives uh-huh. to help people in many instances. But that's it's not anti-police to say that the incentives are wrong to say that the system incentivizes bad action among police officers. And that's not saying police officers, I mean, police officers are subject to the system that they're in. And we have put them in a system where they're tempted 
to do wrong by the incentives that they have. So that's not saying that they are necessarily even doing wrong. Right. I think in, in a system where there's many bad incentives, there are many police officers who do wrong, who will take advantage of these civil forfeiture laws to actually act unjustly towards the poor. Because in a system with, I don't know how many police officers there are, but like probably like a million police officers, then of course there's going to be bad action that results from wrong incentives. But we're not saying the police are just you know doing these wrong things for no reason. We're saying that the incentives are twisted and that we need to fix the system so that police actually have the financial incentive that aligns with what we say we want them doing, which is bringing justice to all, honoring the people around them and helping reduce bad and increase good within society. But yeah, sometimes it feels hopeless. The political incentives are not actually aligned towards making things better or making things right. And so it seems like an intractable Yeah, because their their base isn't to love people. Mm -hmm. Politicians are afraid to reform police in any way that's seen as anything but pro-police because then if they do that and then there's an increase in crime, then they'll be held responsible for it. So politicians have no incentive to do anything other than just give police a longer and longer leash and less and less accountability. And that, and just to be clear, that's not loving. Yeah, that's not actually seeking the good of their constituents. Yeah. It's self-serving because it's them trying to advance their own political career. Which is so complex and so crazy. But again, I think you, it just comes back to, do you love people? Mm-hmm. And if you do then at least be on the right side of these things and how you speak about them and how you yeah. advocate for what's right. And it's hard. It's hard not to get discouraged because it's hopeless and intractable, but our call is still to whatever platform we have, use it in the right direction and on the right side of these things. And try not to feel the weight of, it's not like we can't carry the weight of making things right. There is this impulse in us to want justice for these broken systems. But if you let yourself basically try to take the role of God in bringing Mishpat back, it's an impossibly heavy oh, yeah. burden. I mean, I, we, we've entered the foster care system. Part of our story is entering the foster care system. And that system is crazy. I mean, most people have no idea... What this is a we're we're, we're kind of taking a little side adventure here, but cool. most people have no idea what's happening in foster care. They have no right. idea. They have no idea how broken it is. They have no idea how even the incentives in the foster care community are terrible. And there's there's so many potential good things that never get used because of just uh, like neglect and not loving. And the people in it are burnout. They're over. I mean, it is unbelievable. And I remember my wife and I going in and like, we're going to, we are going to do something about it. Like th- this is, we can do something about it. Let's, let's go in. And man, we just got crushed of like, yeah, this isn't changing. Mm-hmm. The system is so big. It's so deep or really it's not deep. It's just really shallow and it covers the earth. <laughs> it's like that kind of, mm-hmm. and we're not going to do anything about it. It's not going to get fit. No one's fixing our foster care system. It's not going to get fixed. It's basically hopeless. And well, it is, it's hopeless and it's not ever going to really truly work. It's not ever going to be loving to parents that have children in foster care or in the system. 
And I think at some point, yeah, we just were crushed by the weight. We're like, we can't do that. Mm. We're not going to, let's just go in. Let's do what we can do. And which is just a little bit in the grand scheme of things. And then, you know, try to make things better. But ultimately, yeah, we can't carry the weight of fixing. And let alone the foster care system is like almost so small compared to like our criminal justice system. I mean, you could say the foster care system's tied into that because it is. Mm-hmm. But the, our criminal justice system is like so huge that it's mm-hmm. it, it's so big that we're, there's no one wants to fix it. No one's going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it is hopeless. It just seems like it's not going to get fixed. Yeah, it's yeah. a massive tragedy that is throwing away millions of lives, severely hurting. Like a hundred million families have a relative who is uh, have like an immediate family member who is somehow affected by the criminal justice system. So I mean, it's a huge problem. It's costing two hundred billion dollars a year, and the incentives are wrong to actually make it work. Even though most Western democracies have figured out systems that are cost a fraction of ours and have way lower recidivism rates and work way better. Like it could work, but it's our our incentives are not to make it work. Yeah, it would take it would take something it would take a massive shift. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that'll happen. Yeah. So then let's kind of probe a little bit how the system targets black and brown people more. We've talked about how it skews towards targeting the poor because of the civil forfeiture laws, but also part of how it operates is it gives police a lot of discretion to arrest or search anyone that they are suspicious of. And so that police discretion coupled with our cultural brainwashing of black criminality, that uh, just this constant depiction of black people as criminal that started, I mean, it started before the war on drugs, but it was part of the messaging throughout the war on drugs has been this depiction of black people as criminal. And so this has created a system where police oftentimes at a rate that is, I mean, sometimes in, in some of these jurisdictions, police will pull over black drivers at a rate 20 times higher than white drivers, which, I mean, a lot of black people intentionally in, in, when they're driving in areas where that's the case, they'll, they'll drive more carefully because they know that they're more likely to be pulled over. And so it's not that black people are speeding more. It's that... Yeah, that, that disparity is not because black people inherently drive bad. Yeah. Right. But police know that they have an incentive that if I pull over someone and find drugs in their car, then we can use these civil forfeiture laws to take money and black people can't defend themselves. And there's also... there are police throughout the system that are overtly racist. There's a lot that aren't racist but might still have implicit bias where they view black people as more likely to carry drugs, even though that's not true. Yeah, and we, we've talked about that too, of like implicit bias. Everybody has it. It's not wrong to have implicit bias. It's like implicit bias is your temptation to act in a way that is racially unfair. But there's a difference between temptation and sin. Like the way we should think of it is implicit bias is just a a reality we should admit that we have that comes from our culture and from the way that we've been acculturated. Our response needs to be to push back against it and to deliberately act in a way that doesn't just follow our impulses because our impulses are not trustworthy. They're not loving. And so we need to push back against our implicit bias by deliberately trying to empathize and love people. And we've talked about how that affects, again, you're right, like it affects police. It's in our, It's not like judges, even federal judges 
are not immune to implicit bias. Mm-hmm. It's our teachers. There's positions in our society that we just almost give a pass to like, oh, those people mm-hmm. aren't racist. Like none of them can be racist. But it's yeah. like, no, it affects every single job, every single yeah. aspect of our culture. Everyone has this. There's, yeah. no, there's no free pass. Teachers are three times more likely to give detention to black and brown students. Children. We're talking young children here. It, so, and that has waves. Mm-hmm. Like there's waves throughout that it's not like they just go to detention and come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's kind of a, a ripple effect to yeah. some of these things. And and the ways that, I mean, a modern example is this experiment continues to be redone over and over again. But it was I've heard that it was even redone recently during the pandemic. And they continue to find that people with black sounding names are much less likely to have responses to their resumes. So even now, while there's a labor shortage and everyone's saying like, we need labor, resumes of people who have black sounding names are much less likely to get any kind of response. Even, I mean, they just did a follow-up study that found that's true even yeah. now during the pandemic. Yep. So police have a wide discretion and then reasonable suspicion has a very low bar. So police can search black people for almost any reason. The profile of a suspicious person could include someone traveling with luggage or someone traveling without luggage, driving an expensive car or driving a car that needs repairs, or driving an out-of-state license plates, driving a rental car, driving with mismatched occupants, acting too calm, acting too nervous, dressing casually, wearing expensive clothing or jewelry, being one of the first to deplane, being one of the last to deplane, deplaning in the middle, Buying a ticket in cash, using large denomination currencies, using small denomination currencies, traveling alone, traveling with a companion, and so on. There's basically the bar is set so low for police to, to use their discretion that it ends up giving this implicit bias the ability to skew the numbers dramatically. Then there's also the explicit racial bias that happens at times because there are overtly racist police officers. There's, you know, investigations and studies they'll find police officers using racial epithets on social media and stuff like that. So that exists too. And that coupled with the 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 bigger slice of police officers who have this implicit bias that goes unchecked, it ends up skewing the results to where you have racial oftentimes racial differences of like fivefold or tenfold. I think black people are six times more likely to end up in jail for drug crimes, even though they commit drug crimes at the same rate. I think it's interesting to hear the data that you presented as data, but being a black person, how it lands on me is just, it's really hard because I can think of several instances within my community, people that I know, people that people that I know know, (laughs) you know, have been impacted by these statistics and to know what drives a lot of this. Of course, we know what drives it, but to hear it spoken, it's just really hard, but it gives it that connection of the reality that we experience being black. The fear when we're pulled over by police, knowing that that there's a goal and, goal and there's an end game that doesn't consider us or that considers us criminals. And so I haven't really said much as I'm listening because it's just heavy. It's just heavy to hear it as, as data, knowing that for me, 
and my black sons, my black husband, my black family members and friends, that data translates into a harsh reality. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we are going to be ending our series on mass incarceration. We'll leave you with this quote from Angela Davis. The very existence of the prison forecloses the kinds of discussions that we need in order to imagine the possibility of eradicating these behaviors. Just send them to prison. Just keep on sending them to prison. Then, of course, in prison, they find themselves within a violent institution that reproduces violence.